That was really great. Um, hi, how are you? Yeah, this is kind of awesome. I'm sure you guys are all kind of tired from traveling or whatever, but um, I'll try to keep you awake. Um, just a little bit about me so you know who's speaking. Um, I um, started my career as a photographer, photojournalist, um, worked for a lot of local newspapers, St. Pete Times, a lot of newspapers in the Bay Area, got my master's in visual communication, and then um, got a Fulbright to go to India and lived in Bombay freelancing for a couple years, which is where I did my first visual assignment for NPR, and then a few years later joined um, the team over in D.C. So now I'm an editor on the visuals team. And um, I'm going to talk to, be talking to you about photography and visual storytelling. I know that seems kind of crazy in a conference like this, um, but as as you know, the interwebs keep getting deeper with more wonderful ways of experiencing stories and content. Um, a lot of the times, you're going to be using using visuals, and it seems like more and more everyone is making visual decisions these days, whether it be what Instagram am I going to load right now, what am I going to put on Facebook, how am I going to promote the story that I'm making to a larger audience. So um, that is, I think, why I'm here. Um, so I'm going to take you on a little bit of a photographic journey. Um, one of the things that I realized, I was a multimedia trainer for NPR for a year before I joined the visuals team, and I went around to a lot of member stations, just basically establishing a visual language. Because I realized that people were making decisions visually but not having a foundation in the visual language. So we're going to talk about the foundations of visual storytelling, what makes a good image and why, um, when do we want to think about visuals, um, how do I identify visual options or opportunities for a story and um, what are we doing at NPR kind of experimenting with. I want to preface this by saying this is a discussion and a dialogue, so at any point, if you want to ask something, please do. I'm not here to talk at you. I'm here to talk with you. Um, and um, I don't know the um, sort of level of visual literacy in the room, so I'm, I'm going to start pretty basic, um, if that's okay. So bear with me. So the first thing I want to do is show you a two-minute clip of a Hitchcock film. It's called Vertigo. And what I want you to do while you're watching these two minutes is critically think about the decisions that the director and the cinematographer were making for this scene, and then we'll talk about it.
usually like to stop there. <laughs> Peak action. All right, so before you guys think I'm totally crazy and I've lost the plot, why do you think I'd start a sort of photographic journey with something like this? What was there and what wasn't there in that small two-minute narrative? No words. There was no dialogue, right? But there was a beginning, a middle, an end. Pushed how? How did they forward that scene? You don't see her face and you don't know what, who she is or what she's doing. You don't see her face, yeah. Even the first scene, like, you don't even know it's the, like, the Golden Gate Bridge until, you know, 25 seconds in, and you're like, oh, how? Like, that's, that's really So surprise, I guess. There was a reveal. You know, he's following her. He's following her. Yeah. Um, the reason why I love choosing this scene is because it really exemplifies some pretty simple foundations in visual storytelling. Um, there are five different varieties that we choose to use visually that we rotate to keep things interesting and compelling. Five different shots. That's that. Ooh, sorry. I'm not used to talking on the mic. I'm used to like moving around. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so what's the first building block of a visual scene? It's the wide shot, right? The establishing shot, the scene setter. It gives you an idea of where you are, you know, geographically. What's the next one? A medium shot, yeah. I have portrait next, but we'll get to that. A portrait, right? Establishing your protagonist, the characters. And what's the sort of most important thing in a portrait? What do you want to connect with? Their eyes. Their eyes. So you can connect with the humanity of the person, right? You want to see into their eyes. And then the medium shot, right? A little bit closer, full body, um, but still, you know, further in than that wide shot. What do you think the next one is? Close-up. Yes! The detail, the close-up, zooming in. How lovely was this when the camera zoomed right in so your eyes got a little bit of a breather, right? There was some pacing there. There was a visual breather from all of those scene setters. And then the last one? The action shot, right? Movement, motion. This is it. We're not reinventing the wheel here. But when we're thinking about visual variety and pacing and keeping your audience engaged, if you look at anything, video, animation, commercials, you'll see that the director is, are making these choices, right? The five foundations of visual storytelling. Wide, medium, detailed portrait action. Any questions? Please, shout them out. Don't worry about it. So how, do I how did I translate that when I got to NPR and when I started telling stories um, online? This is a sort of older story that I did a while back with Pam Fessler. And um, she was reporting on um, single moms. And um, I'll just walk you through the slideshow that we made um, um, following this mother. So here we have an establishing image, right? And the caption reads, Jennifer Step, 29 lives in Reading, Pennsylvania, and is raising her three children by herself. Like 14 million other single mothers in America, she lives below the poverty line. 
the next, a sense of place. It gives you, you know, an idea of where Jennifer lives, what her environment looks like. And the caption adds to that information. It isn't simply reiterating what you see in the photo. So once a thriving railroad hub and factory town in southeast Pennsylvania, Reading has a poverty rate of 41.3% and is labeled America's poorest city with a population of 65,000 or more. The next is a medium of portrait. Here you're seeing our protagonist, Jennifer, with her eldest daughter, Cayenne. And then we have a detail shot, something to relate to, a decal on her family car with her profile um, reflected. And, um, you know, just to give some visual variety to kind of, to mix it up a bit. In action or transition, this is Jennifer going from the 24-hour daycare that she works at to night classes, um, in which she says, being a head assistant, I can't go any further without some kind of degree. And then we have an action shot of her in the classroom. Step says her goal is to obtain an associate's degree and then a bachelor's degree. She hopes to open a daycare center of her own someday. And then around 9 o'clock is when she picks up her children at work. So this is a different way to kind of look at that similar scene, a family portrait, but a different way to see a family portrait. And then we're back in, in her home, a portrait or action shot. Here she's um, checking her eldest daughter's homework while her daughter is holding her youngest son. Do you have a link to this? It's on NPR. Yeah, it's on the website. I can send you the link for sure. And then something ending. Um, a lot of the times when I'm on assignment, I'm really interested in what, when I'm collaborating with a, with a reporter, sitting in on interviews to understand what, you know, um, people are saying. I remember Jennifer saying this one quote, um, something, sometimes I think I've done something wrong for them to turn their backs on me, she says of her failed relationships with her children's fathers. But then there are other times that I, when I'm in a good mood and I think, oh, well, let them go. If they don't want to do it, I can do it. I can be the mother and the father at the same time. So I'd heard that quote, and I was trying to find a moment in the day to illustrate the fact that this woman is trying to be everything for these ch three children. Um, and this is sort of around the time when she was putting her son to bed. So, um, a lot of us have to make visual decisions, like I said, and so what are the best sort of, what are some guidelines when you're visually editing a set of images or a video or even something to share on social media? If you're, if you're using a variety of images, think about pacing, right? Think about visual variety. A 45-image slideshow of the same information is boring, that is not going to keep me on your story and keep me engaged. Um, each picture should have a purpose. And uh, number three is pretty much the same thing. Pictures shouldn't be redundant. You need to kill your puppies. You need to kill your darlings. They call me the velvet assassin. Um, I worked with Alex Bloomberg and the Planet Money team on the t-shirt project, um, but uh, on the web expression, and they called me the Velvet Assassin. Um, we had a hundred hours of footage, and we ended up using 14 minutes of it. And everything on that site for us had to be audience serving. Didn't matter how hard we worked to get the shot. Um, we had to kill it if it didn't work for our audience. 
Know what story you want to tell and plan accordingly. I can't tell you how important that is. And the first image, if you are doing multiple images, um, it really needs to draw your reader into the story. There's so much noise out there that you really kind of have to cut through it. And um, having a great image represent that story so people can engage and click and find and share um, is really helpful. Bless you. Um, so I've started kind of wide and, and, and gone kind of sort of overall with, you know, structure. Let's go super narrow. What are the three most important aspects of an image? What do you guys think? Subject. Subject, yes. Lighting. Light. Yes, who said it? I heard it. Yes. That's awesome. Content, composition, light. As photographers, when we hit these three things, when we get them in one frame, we've hit it out of the park. This is our holy grail. This is what we're going towards. Um, so just indulge me. I'm going to show you three images that I think embody that. This is an image. Ooh, did you say, mm, I know. It's so good. Oh, I love this photo. Um, this is an image by Alex Webb. He was a Magnum photographer back in the days. He might still be, I'm not sure. Um, but it's um, San Ysidro, California, 1979. Mexicans arrested while trying to cross the border to the United States. It was his cover photo for his book, Border Crossings. And it has everything, right? Your eye goes immediately to the center of the frame where you see the first arrest. It then travels all the way up to the helicopter where you have a feeling of the weight of the law. There's like a metaphor there, right? Coming down onto the scene. It's then circled back here to another arrest and you see a third in the background. And then you have this really ominous storm juxtaposed next to these del delicate wildflowers. And so everything is there in one photo. It tells an entire story. And Alex didn't get lucky. He worked really hard to get to this moment to compose this frame. And the most important thing here is that the hand and the helicopter have a little bit of separation, but they don't overlap, right? It's not distracting. Um, another photographer, Sam Abel, National Geographic. This is cattle branding in Montana. Um, I've heard Sam speak about this photo, and what he says was um, he in initially saw the first scene here, and he, um, he positioned himself right um, as the guys were crouching to brand the first cattle, and then he waited. He waited for the background to to compose and to present itself. That's how he speaks about it. So he composed the front of the frame and then waited for the background to, to fall into place. And then a man with a red bucket walked by, which is awesome. <laughs> so you have the blood on the hands, the red on the collar, that bucket, that beautiful curve in the background. You see the entire process in one frame. And then you have that little bit of separation with the hat and the cowboy in the, in the back, so they're not overlapping. It's just absolutely divine. 
And this is Steve McCurry in India. Um, one of the things that's awesome about this photo is it puts the viewer into the back seat of a taxi cab in Bombay during the monsoons. So now you know what it feels like when a woman comes begging with her child in the rain. Um, perspective and putting your viewer into that, the, the shoes of that person. So what was the first thing? Content, right? So let's get a little bit deeper into that. What do I mean by content? Well, knowing your story, focusing on what you want to say, positioning yourself to make that frame, making more than one or two images, so staying a little bit longer than you think you would, and making images when people are doing something active. All right, so what do I mean by that? Let's walk through something. Um, I went um, to the National Portrait Gallery with one of our awesome reporters, Sam Sanders, uh, for a training. And this was the first frame he made, and my assignment for, to him was, okay, um, let's pretend the National Portrait Gallery just opened their courtyard to the public during lunch. And the story is how people are going to use this space and what they're doing in this space. Um, this, so I just wanted you to see what he had to work with. Where would you begin? What would you do if that was your assignment? Where would you start? I'd get low in the right-hand corner. Okay. You had? Um, find something to kind of focus in on. So you have the background, but you have some kind of detail to, to make it more interesting. Okay. Go sit at a table. Go sit at a table. What Sam did was he listened. He listened to people having a good time or people that were actually engaging with each other. And the, the people that seemed the most interesting was this family right here, this um, mother with her two kids in the corner. So we went and talked to them. We said, hey, we're doing this photo exercise. Do you mind if we hang out with you for a little bit and take some photos? It looks like you guys are having fun. And then we said, just pretend like we're not here. And she's like, yeah, sure, go ahead, whatever. Um, and so we did. And this is Sam's first frame that he made. What do you think? Successful? What? Tell me. Well, I can't see the young kid's eyes. Yeah. I can't see the mother's eyes. I can't see the daughter's eyes. Like, yeah. I only see one of the eyes. They're doing something, but I have no idea who they are or what they care about. Sam has not organized the information in this frame for you at all, right? That's his job. As photographers, our job is to organize the information. So you, all you need to, all you get is that information and the emotion, right? We want to hit you in the heart and the head. And you shouldn't have to sift through it. So he stays, he moves around, he makes a few more frames. What's happening from here to here? He's moving. He's moving. Different angle. But what does he do with the background? He tightens it, but he kind of loses it all together, right? He's, now what? He's gotten a little lower, right? Got a little bit more of the background, cool. What's not working? The viewer isn't quite sitting at the table, but the viewer isn't quite standing up either. So he's not close, the table's not working, the left-hand side of the frame, there's no emotion there. There's sort of dead space, right? It gets a little lower. We have some emotion now, but it's pretty far, right? And then what's happening with the bottle? It's like going up her nose. <laughs> That's distracting. 
Stepping back a bit, awesome. Going around, looking to see what's on the other side, realizing the background's getting a little bit more cluttered. Maybe I was better on the other side. And then she has another kid. We didn't know that. Another kid just came up, and that was her other son, and he's like, Mom, someone's taking photos of us. And she's like, just pretend like they're not here. So we're like, awesome. So she's got another kid, they're playing. What's the difference from here to here? It's more like you're at the table. You're at the table. Look at the change in head size, right? You're at the table, you're closer, you can see kind of their eyes, you get a little bit of the background. Now what are you contending with? That garbage, right? If you brought me this image, um, as an editor, I'd say, great, that's a story about recycling. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because that's the subject of the photo. So Sam's gonna, Sam, so Sam here is like Sam Abel with the cattle branding. He's kind of getting closer, he kind of has his foreground, he still needs to clean it up a bit. He's gonna go from here to here to here to there. He, all he did was he moved six inches from here to here, over the garbage. He didn't move the garbage. He didn't alter the situation. He didn't ask anyone to change where they were. He simply moved himself closer, right? So brilliant. Now we've got a clean foreground. We're so much closer to the emotion. What are we contending with now? person growing out of that kid's head. Yes! The horns, right? The background. We have to wait for the background to resolve itself. We've got this cute little kid growing horns. So this is why I say stay. Make more frames. Understand what you're trying to communicate and edit while you're making the photos. It's your job to organize the chaos for your viewer. Um, so he goes from here to here, here, to there. Exactly. <laughs> this is the frame, right? Your eye goes immediately to the center where you have this beautiful emotion. There's that little bit of separation, right? The hand in the helicopter, it's not over intersecting, but you get a sense of the background. You have some nice balance with the mom and the sister. Um, it's all there, and yeah. Do you know when you hit that? Yeah, you feel it. I mean, okay. if you make images long enough, and you keep, you know, anticipating and looking at action and looking at moment, you feel when you made that frame. You can feel it. Um, and then before you know it, it's gone. But that's how you find a moment like that in something like that. I notice it's four minutes between the initial to the end. Yeah. I'm wondering if you need more time or less, like how much time do you need? No, I mean, like I said, that was, you're right, that was four minutes. We just, he just kept moving, he kept shooting. This isn't like we spent a half a day with them. Which is why, you know, if you set some time, if you're reporting and you set some time to make photos, um, not doing both at the same time. I tell a lot of people you can't make good tape and make good images at the same time. Shireen knows yes. that. <laughs> she 
She's like, put down the audio equipment and take some pictures <laughs> next time. Don't try and do this at the same time. Yeah, so. Yeah, that's kind of like my mantra. You can't, and you can try, but both will suffer. And if you're fubbling with equipment, then you're not being true to the people whose story you're telling. You're getting caught up in the gear, and you're not there to serve them and to tell their story. You might miss some audio. You might miss a great frame, but you'll have one of them. From my experience, it's really hard to get subjects that will be comfortable with a camera like that, especially if they have big lens. So, I mean, that's... This was with a point-and-shoot. Um, the, the uh, you know, my sort of response to that is if the subject is comfortable with you, they're going to be comfortable with your equipment. That simply means you need to spend a little bit more time with them and you need to let them understand what your intentions are. And then give them some space and say, hey, you were doing something before I got here. You want to keep doing that? And then I'm just going to move around you and just ignore me. If they're comfortable with you and they're comfortable with your intentions, guaranteed they'll allow you to do that. So what sort of coaching were you giving Sam in between all of those? Shows? Nothing. Nothing. We had kind of gone through visual variety. You know, he might have shown me one frame. I'm like, okay, where does your eye go? Usually your eye goes to the brightest part of the frame. So in the early bits when he had this huge table, I said, my eye is going straight to that table. Is that what you want me to see? No. Okay. Keep moving. Any more questions? So content, super important. Composition, um, pretty much the same principles. Who, what's your focus? What's the best angle to communicate your vision? If you're up high looking down, you're going to make your scene subjects look more diminutive. If you're on the ground looking up, you're going to make them seem more statuesque. Usually with kids, it's easy to shoot you know, look at them from down below, getting onto the floor and seeing what they're seeing is going to make your images more dy dynamic. Um, looking at the entire frame, what you're including and what you're excluding is really important. I, what I like to say is we make images, we don't take images. That connotates an active, not a passive experience. I'm actively looking at what's there and what isn't there and what I want there and what I don't want there. So I'm making the frame or I'm looking critically at what's coming in and what's, um, what's going to stay out. This is an image by Jackie Northam um, in a slum in Lahore, and I think it's, it's wonderful. Your eye goes to the center. It has this beautiful curve. Um, you have another scene in the background, and then it kind of loops around to that donkey on the left-hand side, and you have that horizon so you can see a little bit further. Gives you a wonderful you know, sense of place, of feeling. So there's some photographic techniques, devices that we use as photographers to keep our images more dynamic. Um, has anyone seen that? That sort of grid? It's on the back of your iPhones. It's on the back of your point-and-shoots. Um, what it does is it divides the image into thirds, and it breaks it up horizontally and vertically. And it makes your images more dynamic when you put your subject matters into certain 
points in that frame where they intersect. So your subject isn't al- always dead center, but it, there's a little bit of dynamic um, sort of intrigue there. So here, David Gilkey, he's put his subject on the left-hand side of the frame, not solely in the center. This is Alex Webb again in Mexico City. And if you squint, you can almost see the rule of thirds that he's used. He's got information in every compartment to sort of get you into this scene. Is there an idea that there's a sweet spot in the rule of thirds? No, not really. There's no formula for it. It just kind of allows you to move your horizon either to the top of one-third of the top or below or to the right or to the left-hand side. A lot of the times we shoot exactly how we see from here, and it can be very dull. If you just move a little bit below or above, your images are going to be way more dynamic. Perspective. Um, When you're in a place or a scene or a story where you're finding it really hard to figure out what's the frame, where's the photo, what I like to do is look at the scene from the perspective perspective of the person whose story I'm telling. What are they seeing? What's their perspective? So this is our single mom, Jennifer. She's checking Cheyenne's homework. So the camera, the point of view is from her. You know, this is what she would be seeing if you were in her shoes. And then changing the perspective completely. So people are looking at the most common objects in totally different ways. Leading lines. This is a device that we use. Very easy to just get your uh, viewer straight to the subject of your frame. So bus window. um, Yarn factory in Indonesia. Lunchtime in India. And then um, framing. It's another device. I take every opportunity to kind of look through things and see through things. Sometimes I look like a fool, an absolute fool. But that's kind of what you have to do in order to really push the way you're seeing common things. Um, So this is through a window in Siberia, David Gilkey. This was back in Reading looking through that um, bus window again. Reflections and layers. This is a device that we use. Sure. Can you go back to that photo you just had a second ago? Sure. So what's interesting about that is what I would consider the subject of that photo, that girl, is what's out of focus and the background is in focus. Why, why make that choice and what does that do to the story that you're telling that image? That's great. For me, that wasn't the subject. Okay. For me, it was so you can get a sense of the street and the place, and I just needed a device to kind of make that element more interesting. If she wasn't there, it would just be a bunch of cars. So if it was the girl, I'd probably want her in focus. Um, So reflections. This is a great way to kind of get inside and outside into one frame if that's what you want to communicate. Um, This is an image in London, and it's a woman sitting in a a cafe with the buildings reflected um, onto the window. This is a couple in Baltimore. They're homeless, and what they do is they ride the night bus, which is free, in the evenings to stay warm. So this is simply an image of their reflection um, on the bus. 
And the third one. What was the third one? Come on, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Light. This is a little bit harder to get the nuances of, but once you start seeing light and appreciating light and knowing how to use light, it's going to just blow your mind away. Um, light is, is so lovely, and light is a wonderful way to get your viewer engaged with where you want them to see. In this case, that light you go straight to the gentleman down below, right? It leads your eye there. Um, here, this is morning light in Siberia. That beautiful golden light goes straight to the subject, right? Um, this is David Gilkey. So when are the best times of the day for light? Yeah, those are what we call the golden hours, right? Dawn and dusk. I prefer dusk because dawn's a little early for me. Uh, but... Those are the two best times. Um, but we can't always shoot on, you know, dawn and dusk. We can't always go out on assignment solely in those times. So window light is going to be your best friend um, when it's pretty harsh outside. Um, and then when you're starting out, I try to say try to make as many images outside as, as possible. Indoor light is really difficult unless you have a lot of daylight because there's a lot of fluorescent and tungsten and just like really crazy light going on. Um, so, you know, put yourself in a successful situation. For instance, this is very... You know, this is afternoon light. It's about 3 o'clock, pretty harsh. She's off to her senior prom. She just looks back at her room, and you have this wonderful sort of diffused light coming in um, from her room that's just falling on her. This is a technique that I call the reporter sandwich. It's keeping the sun behind you and your subject in front of you, and you're the reporter, and you're sandwiched in between. Um... So if I do that and it's really hot sun, what's going to happen? Shadow or squinting, right? If my subject's looking directly at the sun, they're going to be like this. So what you can do is just move to the side. So they're not squinting, the shadow's not on them, and you have this wonderful you know, shadow to play with if you want to. This is side light, and this is David Gilkey again. And look at how he's organized the frame. A very simple portrait, but he's made it pretty interesting. He's got some lines here, he's got that beautiful shadow that stops right at the edge of the snow. What's not happening in the background? Yes, the pole is not coming out of his head. And believe me, once you start looking at images, you'll see a lot of poles coming out of people's heads. Um, that Yeah, and David consciously made that decision because he's thinking about every element in the frame. So the other thing, and I know you guys know this, but um, it's great to iterate caption information. You know, the five W's. Um, this is a great example of, I think, a headline and a caption and an image all working together, neither being redundant. Um, this is a story by Pam Flessler. It, the title is Turning Trash to Cash to Help the Nation's Poor. And then you see an image of a guy in a warehouse working on a mattress. And then the caption is, 
A worker dismantles a mattress at a recycling facility in Oakland, California. The material will be used to make carpet pro- um, products, and proceeds will help support the St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County, a nonprofit that helps low-income families in Eugene, Oregon. So you have all of that information. Um, you understand the story. If you're interested, you're going to go further. The image could have been a portrait of one of the people on the board or something like that. But in this case, Pam put herself into a position where there's someone doing something that was relevant to the story. All right, so portraits. When we can't go when something active is happening, another way to make an image is by making portraits. So the three most important things with portraiture, um, and this is extremely basic, but lighting, especially on the face, focus, and background. So how's this portrait? This is probably the worst image I've ever made. (laughs) What exactly? It's a portrait of the lamp. It's a silhouette. Why is she silhouetted? Because the light's behind her. It's not a reporter's sandwich. You guys all know this. Um, and, And this is what I'm talking about window light, right? Like, One simple way to reposition Kim in this scenario is simply by putting her next to the window. And look at the difference. Night and day, right? All I've done is there was a chair right here. So all I said was sit on that chair. And she did. And now you can see her face. Unfortunately, the background is a hot mess. So I'm going to have to work with her on that. I took her outside in front of our old building and I put her in front of the lobby, not much to work with. Um, If you can see on the left-hand side that really hot light, what time of day do you think it is? Yeah, it's like high noon. So if it's like high noon and you're outside, what do you want to do to get rid of that really hot light? (laughs) What did you say, Photoshop? Put them in the shade where the light is even, right? So in this case, I put Kim in front of that sort of little bit of granite um, by the building, and I made this frame. And this was with my iPhone. No no fancy, no nothing. High angle, it's very attractive. Um, the, The light's coming in from the side. We've got a little bit of reflection onto that marble from the street, so you have some depth. This is where Kim was standing. So it doesn't take a lot to make a compelling image if you don't have that much time. All it takes is is just, you know, trying it and, and being able to be comfortable figuring it out. I didn't see this frame immediately. I was like, okay, Kim, maybe I'll put you here. Maybe I'll put you here. Okay, I'm going to do a high angle. Oh, look, there's a little bit of reflection. I'm going to focus on that. Um, if you think your subject is going to be a little bit awkward, just say, hey, do you want to just play with your phone for a bit while I figure out where to put you or where I look around? Like, just give me a second. You know, just be transparent with them. This is something new that I'm trying. I'm not totally comfortable with this camera. Like, show your vulnerability. And believe me, people will give you the time. Um, I didn't totally see this frame right when I got there, but I worked my way to it in not that short amount of time. Or in a short amount of time, sorry. Any questions there? Yeah. Oh, not, I mean, just overall, I had a question. Um, 
as a news reporter, I have to take a lot of photos of people behind podiums. Mm. How do? I, what are some tips for making that interesting? Why? Why do you have to do that? Well, it's usually like the subject of the news. You know, somebody's speaking, someone's making an announcement. So and it's always the same. So you had a press conference. conference. Yeah, it's always yeah. the governor or the mayor behind a podium, and it's just that shot is never interesting. No, and there's really nothing to do to make that shot interesting. They're behind a podium, kind of like this. What is interesting is if you go super early or stay late and wait for them to do something away from that podium, or if you know what the press conference is about ahead of time, making an image of what they're talking about instead of them could be more interesting. Um, there's no way to make a person in f behind a mic look interesting. A lot of times if there's shade, but you want to get the background too and you can't do that. Yeah, that's tricky. You got to decide. If it's really hot, you got to either decide to expose for the light or expose for the shadow and the light's going to be blown out. Um, you can do a little bit of equivalent exposure and in Photoshop bring them both a little bit together, but if the light is like six to ten stops apart, you're going to have to choose one or the other. Did I? Yeah. Um, this is a little bit off topic, but I'm wondering about when you're working with reporters, audio reporters specifically. So I'm, I'm working with a photographer right now and we run it like we're in each other's way and we have to negotiate and his camera's clicking so that's not good for my audio. And then when I'm there, that's not good for, like, my mic is not good for his photos. Yeah. I'm just wondering. If it's a delicate dance. Yeah. And you have to communicate. Yeah. Um, it could be a matter, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll have the reporter go first, report the story out, get the context for all the characters that they speak to, get the scenes, and then I hire the photographer and I send them out the next day. Yeah, he likes to come with me because he says there's a rapport that he likes to be there while the rapport is being established and then he can be part of that. And then, so then yeah. what you could also do is leave him, do your reporting, get what you need, and then let him stay a couple of hours later. Um, there is no way to do it simultaneously. Sometimes there is, but then it's like jumping in and jumping out. Yep. Like when I work with a story and Pam, she'd be like, okay, I'm gonna jump in, and she'd get the sound, and then she'd be like, okay, now you jump in, and then I would jump in. Um, but we had to communicate that dance um, before we went on assignment. And then other times it was like, oh, well, they're going here and they're doing something interesting, but I don't, Pam was like, I don't really need that. And it's like, okay, I'll go do that because I think people need to see that. So it could be sending he or she off on their own for a little bit. So just super communication. And then we all, we have like a signal for when she's like, I'm getting this, get them out. And I'm out. <laughs> you know. I just had a couple suggestions for the podium question. Um, one thing I've seen, because I, what I do is I watch the professional photographers who are there with me at the press <laughs> conference and see what they're doing. And oftentimes they're getting to some weird angle, like they're shooting from the ground up at someone. If it's somebody who's important and powerful, that works really well. Yeah. Or if you get something in the background that's interesting. Or sometimes you shoot, if there's an audience, if it's a press conference where there's like real people there, yeah. shooting them is more interesting. Than or you shoot the photographers. Because usually they're looking ridiculous on their tummies, and you're the photographer behind getting the whole scene, you know? 
Because press conferences are interesting. They're so lame. And sometimes what's cool about them is how contrived they are. So seeing the entire, like, if you're really close, it looks like there's a lot of people. But stepping back and seeing, like, 10 people in a field and calling it a press, you know, that's kind of interesting, too. So depending on what it is, um, yeah. So common mistakes with portraits, objects protruding from bodies. Um, excessive flash, I'm very, I'm very much a proponent of natural light and not on-camera flash because I think it just looks artificial and red-eye and blah, blah, blah. Um, being too far away is the biggest culprit. Um, that zoom on your iPhone is the worst thing in the world because the quality of your image goes down exponentially with every little zoom in. So the best thing that I say is zoom with your feet. Get closer yourself if you can. And then, of course, awkward expressions, which means making a bunch of frames and getting people comfortable pretty fast. So you can make storytelling portraits like this. Um, this is a family at an anti-abortion rally. Um, this is a family in New Orleans. Again, you know, organizing the information, using those leading lines, great time of day, side light. Um, look at how her feet are right on that line where the grass comes through the pavement. You know, little details like that I love. And other people might not even notice, but as a picture editor, I love that. Um, and their expressions are phenomenal. Um, this is the new commissioner for the Border Patrol. And Steve Inskeep went and um, interviewed him. And then I went the next day to make a portrait of him. And one of the things Steed said is, like, you have to get the images of Ground Zero that he sits with in his office because that is the way he kind of frames everything he does. He has these epic images of Ground Zero. So it took me a while to work to get to this frame. I made a few photos of him at his desk, asked him to move over to the couch, saw that, you know, I had to really work to organize the image with his head, because there are a lot of cranes and buildings that could have been coming out of his head. Um, I got lower to have a little bit more dimension, the reflection on the table. Um, and then he used to work for the Seattle Police Department, and I noticed that um, blanket and the handcuffs that were in the back. So I just asked him to move like two inches that way um, to get that little bit more in there. So, you know, this is a pretty boring situation, but with some creativity and moving around and taking your time, um, you can make something fairly interesting. How patient was he? <laughs> I didn't have much time. I had like 10 minutes. But what I did have was what I asked for is like, if he, can I come a little early to see his office? So I can get a sense of like, okay, where are my positions, right? I can have like two or three different variations in my head before he arrives. And then when he arrives, getting him pretty comfortable. I knew he'd work, he had worked for the St. Pete Police Department. So I lived in St. Pete for a while. So we started talking about that. And then just kind of, you know, like just got him relaxed. And then... That's um, him relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> Ish. <laughs> well, that was great.
great too is the way he looked at me. I mean, he's the head of the border patrol, so I don't necessarily want him smiling. So this was what he gave me, and I was like, "All right, cool. Like, you look like you're getting, you know, you got stuff on in your head." That, um, you know, the so the caption, which I think is really important as well, U.S. Customs Border. Patrol Commissioner Gil Kurlikowski sits under an image of New York's Ground Zero in his office in Washington. For him, it serves as a daily reminder of the security threats that have shaped his agency. Who wrote that? Uh, we, I did. Okay. Yeah, I did. Is, is it okay? <laughs> English is my second language. No, I just, you're talking about the, ne- I'm just curious about the whole process. There's a lot of people involved. In oh, this, right. And I'm wondering, that's all I It was copied. That's all I meant is like, who's right. doing the cut lines? Because that seems pretty important. No, usually the photographers take a pass at the cut lines or the reporters or we do them together and then they go through a copy edit. But the the reason why I read that is um, it's important to add context if you think that something's important in the frame that you're you know, your viewer isn't going to get, make sure you make that explicit, right? Make sure you put it in there in some way. When you're doing portraits, how much direction do you give them? Like, if they're smiling, do you tell them not to smile? It depends on the story. Because they're looking at you, there's an explicit, you know, understanding with the viewer that you are making a portrait. You have asked the person to be in this situation. So you have asked this person to do whatever you want them to do. So if the tone of the story is happy, then... I would encourage you to, you know, get the right tone of the story for the portrait. Um, the worst is when they look so happy and jovial and the story is about their son dying. And, you know, I just can't run that on a, a story. It just doesn't fit the tone. So the image should capture, like, the emotional essence of the story. Can you speak uh, for the last two shots about composition of... Um that and that. I think it's so powerful that they're both centered, but how does that play into that rule of thirds idea? Yeah, it doesn't actually. They are centered, um, but that's exactly what we wanted. We wanted you to see them and go into it. Um, a lot of the portraits that I make are centered um, because that's what I want. Here, at least, you know, you've got the mom on the top third of the frame, and the, or the grandmother and the kids a little bit below. So it's got a little, but that le- that leading line kind of brings it all together. Yeah, I always wrestle with that. Should I put them off to the side and do that? Or I guess it's just your eye. It depends on wor- and what works. And, you know, making, I think, what's important is doing a ton of variations in the field. Because a lot of times I don't know in the field what works because I'm moving so much and I'm thinking about so much. It's really important to get out of your silo too. We are our worst editors. As photographers, we are our worst editors. So I'm constantly editing other people on my team and they're editing me. Um, Getting out of your silo and seeing what resonates with other people. You were there. You see something totally different than if someone wasn't. Um, So iPhones, I know a lot of you guys are using them. Yeah. Before you get away from him, I'm just curious how often you have to wrestle with photo approval. Like, uh, I think we're our own worst editors of pictures of ourselves, too. I mean, does a guy like this have an approval over what image you would use of him? None. None at all. He doesn't, I don't even show them the back of my camera. Yeah, and usually I don't as a rule because a lot of people are so self-conscious of their image that if they see something and they don't like it, then that's it. Like, they can't get beyond that. 
So no one sees anything. Can I ask this real quick process question? So how, just the timeline, Steve went and interviewed him. He, like, walks out, and are you there with him? Mm-hmm. Okay. I went so, the next day. Okay, so, because I know he... I'm just curious, like, so he already knows, like, this is what the story's going to be. I walked out, and this is what it's going to be. Like, this is the tone. That's why he's saying... Oh, Steve? Yeah. Steve simply said there's some really epic images of 9-11. Okay. That might be something that you could use. That's all he said to me. So I kind of had it in my head. Okay. Um, I just didn't know how much you guys, like, try to match the tone of the audio story. No, I, I, I didn't know exactly what the interview was. I didn't listen to the entire interview. But I do know he was the new head of the Border Patrol, which is different from, like, you know, first grade teacher or, you know, or I don't know, whatever. There was another question, yeah? Yeah, yeah I had a formal question. Along the lines of photo approval, when you're working with stories where you've gotten images, say, from the reporter, how often, or do you ever make a choice between mediocre photo and no photo? And when do you make that call, like, no art? Um, well, um, it's, a, it's a great question. Bad art can make a viewer not click on your story just as much as great illustrative art can make a viewer fall further into your story. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I'm really, my mission is to phase iStock photography off of my website because I don't think it does anyone justice. And in my newsfeed, when I see it, I know that it's a stock photo. I think it's a stock story. I'm not going to click on it. Um, So, you know, if an image isn't so great, but it's so compelling in the sense that the content, you know, the viewer really needs to see something in that frame, then we may run it. But if it's too blurry or if it, it... if it devalues the actual story, then we won't run it, and we won't run a photo, or we'll look for, we'll look for a photo on the wires if we can, or we'll commission an illustration. Um, so this is a little bit old. There's a n- different icon for, but I really like the camera plus. No, strike that. What do I like? Hang on. Uh, I like the Pro Camera app. Um, I think it's like $4.99. It's called Pro Camera. And what it does is it allows you to, it separates your exposure and your focus, right? So Would, Camera Plus does that. Huh? Camera Plus does that too. Camera Plus does that too. Yeah, sure. Um, either one works. But this is incredible. Because you can now control a little bit more with your iPhone what you're getting. So in this situation, my exposure, the ring is down there on the inside. So what's happening? Exposing for the inside for what's dark and everything um, in the window is being blown out, right? And then in this situation, my exposure is on the window. So notice that it's exposing for the window and everything else is dark on the inside. Um, and then the same thing with the focus. Here, the focus ring is on the background, so the building in the back is in focus, and here it's in the foreground, right? So these two things on your iPhone are so incredibly important, and um, this app will change your life. At least it does for me. Uh, this is this is the phone that I use for the best camera. Um, is the camera that you have on you at all times. Nowadays, more and more, it's the phone, right? 
Um, and then the, the other thing is think about, you know, visuals as shareable things that can travel on the internet to get your um, listener, viewer into the story. Um, this was a story that Carrie Kahn did on the influx of young migrants um, coming to the border. And um, she had this in her take. And it was a map of freight train routes given to unaccompanied minors headed towards the U.S.-Mexico border, um, which we had never seen. And on the back of that map told you it had a warning saying, um, be careful of the lighter freight trains because you're more likely to be thrown off because they're going faster. Um, so this was an incredible visual element that we had on the page, but we also, you know, we didn't simply tweet out the headline of the story with the link, but we actually told a little story on Twitter so you would get interested in learning more. Um, and this was in Carrie's take, and this is why I ask um, uh, reporters to send me everything because they are their worst editors and she probably wouldn't have sent this photo to me. Um, so I want to look at everything they're making as far as images because they're so close to the story, they don't even know what they have. Um, so did you just send that image out as a... As a as this a is the full tweet. Oh, that's the, oh, I see. Yeah, this is the full tweet. And, is the, and that's the link to the story. And that's the link to the story. Um, same thing here. We did an animated GIF of ISIS sort of moving further into Iraq. That was what we tweeted out. Um, uh, actually, this actually lived on its own on Twitter. We didn't even have the link to the story. So we just wanted people to share that. So a few practical ways to approach visual storytelling. Thinking of the visuals from the beginning of your reporting right, as part of your process if you, it needs to be part of your process. Um, can we go when people are doing something? Can we set enough, set enough time aside to make an image? What is the emotional essence of the story? What is it that I want to convey? And then what are your resources? Um, you know, freelancer, intern, local newspaper, making images on your own. Um, a lot of what we do is sort of in relation to time and resources. So this is us on the NPR visuals team. Um, I love selfies. Um, I'd like, yeah, I got Steven Skeep into selfies. That's my claim to fame. Uh, but um, I don't know. We've got like 15 more minutes. Um, I was going to show you some things that get us excited on the visuals. Yeah. Can you, can you go back to that last slide real quick? Yeah. I'm old school. I've got this. Oh, sure. Sorry. Pen and paper. Oh, you want to write? Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> um, it's up to you how you guys want it to end. I can show you some things that we're experimenting with that we are kind of jazzed about. Oh, okay. Um, let me know when... Oh, no. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so our ethos on the visuals team is we like, I mean, you know, we can't hit it out of the park all the time, but we want to make things of the web and not just put things on the web. This is a new language, um, that's evolving constantly. And if we're just using it to put in text, to slap photos, to put audio on the web, we're not really totally 
taking advantage of the power that it has. And so more and more we're trying to experiment with immersive storytelling. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to check out Borderlands. Um, one of the things that we did early last year was we combined two of our teams. We had a multimedia team and we had a news apps team. We had a bunch of coders and developers and, and designers and we had a bunch of photographers and producers and editors and we decided, actually it was after Planet Money Makes a T-Shirt when we collaborated on that project to continue to be one team and collaborate. So we became the NPR visuals team kind of out of that. And um, this was one of the sort of bigger projects after Planet Money that we did. It was called Borderland, and we did a road trip, uh, sorry, a road trip with Stevenskeep for two weeks, um, driving the U.S.-Mexico border. And what it starts with, and sorry, I did this. Um, hang on. What it starts with is a counter kind of giving you an idea of what is being crossed on the border in the time that you are on the site. So giving you an idea that the border is alive and breathing and it has movement and things are happening. This is a type of storytelling that I can't do anywhere else. I can't do this on television, on the radio. I can only do it online. Getting data and using it in this way to bring your viewer into a place and to understand that while you've been on this site, three pounds of marijuana have been seized. You know, 47 pedestrians have crossed um, legally, 87 vehicles have crossed legally. Um, this is what kind of gets us excited. And then breaking down stories into little nuggets to kind of have you walk through. Um, this expression has different chapters, and they're all kind of different. There's a portrait section... I'm sorry, I don't think the internet is where you can flip through portraits of people. And the, there's a video. There's an essay by Steve on one moment in the story. There's something fun that we called snack time. These are Toasty Locos. They're crazy. Pickled pork rinds, fried peanuts, tamarind candy, chili sauce, hot pink, pickled fruit sauce, a squeeze o' lime. Enjoy. <laughs> My biggest regret is I didn't taste that. I know, <laughs> but yo, it was kind of nasty. It was really heavy, it smelled funny. I tried, I tried. Um, anyways, this is one thing, um, Wes Lindemood. Can you tell us how that's hosted, or like, what was that created? All of our code is online, and it's open. You can take this, this comes from our, our sort of app template foundation, which you can take the code for and build off of that. So if you go to NPR Visuals, um, or if you just Google NPR Visuals Team Blog, you can see all of our code and sort of documentation on how we built these things. Borderland was built from basically a spreadsheet. Also, I don't know totally exactly how they did it, if I'm being totally transparent. <laughs> 
I work with tremendously talented people that blow my mind every day. Um, Wes Lindemood is obsessed with sound, um, rightfully so. It's incredible, and we want to figure out how to harness that. And and this is one thing that he did um, just as a prototype. Um, it was for Halloween. Um, and we tell you here that it's designed for your headphones. You put on your headphones, but... So it's actually an animated GIF, which isn't animating right now, but all of our stories are responsive. So this is how it would look on the mobile phone. Um, and then if you click here, you can get a little bit of an idea of what what it is that you just heard. And this is just something that, that we're working on. Um, another thing, it's a, a platform for experimental storytelling that we're calling Look at This. We had a photo blog called The Picture Show, which we loved, but we kind of grew out of it fairly quickly in the sense that we didn't want to just talk about photography, but we wanted to talk about visual curiosities and rabbit holes and, and different things. And so we created a platform called Look at This where the image is the start of the story. It's not the end-all, be-all. A lot of other, you know, a lot of photo blogs, they talk about the photographer and how they got to the frame. I'm interested in going way beyond that. I'm interested in the frame being the starting point and then getting learning something beyond that. So um, this is a story that we collaborated with Lourdes Garcia Navarro in Brazil. It's about plastic surgery. And um, it's... It's really simple. It's portraits of women, what they've had done, a little bit of context, and themselves. And what's really interesting is if you experience it, and I, I can't really, um, I don't want to read the whole thing out to you, so I'm just going to tell you experience it. But you can see what it'll, it'll look like on the mobile too. Um, but I think why this resonated with our audience is that it was slightly revelatory in the sense that the way they look at plastic surgery in Brazil is sort of upkeep. Um, it's eating healthy, exercising, and doing your best um, in in keeping your body image. And and a lot, you know, there are nonprofits that allow people of low income to get plastic surgery. Um, so, anyways, it was a great story. It was a collaboration with Lulu. We're look, we're, you know, we're we're sort of kind of trying to think outside the box. Animation. This was a recent um, story that we collaborated with a freelance animator about women and and voice. Did anybody ever tell you you have kind of a childlike voice? Oh God, your voice is so annoying. It's so squeaky. It's so high. Frantic grating, obnoxious. Take a shot of whiskey. That may help your voice like sound more rich. A woman's voice is not authoritative. People will not believe her. I got this letter in the mail. It's written on a note card. And it basically tells me that I sound like a Kardashian sister. <laughs> Talking While Female, part of NPR's look at image and the changing lives of women. So, okay. Uh, 
just give you a little taste of that. So that's us trying to play with animation. One of the things that someone told me when I got into the building is, we know what NPR sounds like. It's your job to figure out what we look like. And so that's kind of what we're doing every day, is to get that NPR-ness, get that driveway moment, get that feeling on, on the web. And we do not hitting it out of the park all the time. We work really hard. Things fail. There's amazing stories that we put a tremendous amount of time in that just don't get passed around. And then there's other stories that just go like wildfire. So it's really just putting yourself out there and experimenting. When you are working with freelancers, how much direction... Lots. You're super specific. It's not just like, we want to do this thing, go for it. No, because it's part of your editorial voice, and you can't outsource your editorial voice. So, um, you know, when a photographer comes to me with a fully fully edited video and is like, hey, I think it'd be a great collaboration for you, and I'm like, hey, I'm not going to take your video and put it on my website, because we've had no collaboration with what the story is. So I don't want to outsource our editorial voice, but I need to work really closely. Um, Kelly Anderson is an extremely prolific animator. The things that she's done have been incredible. And so Selena reported this story out, started laying out the audio, and then Kelly started coming up with sketches and ideas. And it was actually her idea to have the equalizer because we weren't even sure where we wanted to go with this. But there were other places where she was going in directions where like, yeah, no, I don't think, you know, let's so, you know, so a lot, even with photographers, a lot of direction. And do you have any guiding principles when it comes to, okay, we're going to decide to do this in-house versus hire a That depends on resources and time. Okay. Yeah. Um, we're trying, you know, animation with video. was a famous guy a long time ago. It's a person who asked a lot of questions to people. Yeah, I've seen his picture. <laughs> He's not even around right now. No, I haven't seen him. I think Socrates was like this guy who, um, he was very smart and he, I think he might have invented the Socratic seminar idea. <laughs> You know, <laughs> um, you know, animated GIFs for, for very simple demonstrations. These aren't very tricky or, or, or sort of tough to do. Um, so, you know, we have projects that go from, like, dime size to huge, like the T-shirt project. Um, we're playing with, um, let's see, uh, Code Switch just did an awesome animated illustration about ghost stories, Code Switch Halloween, which we hired an illustrator to do animated GIFs for, um, wait for it, oh, yes, that's awesome, um, so, you know, we're trying different things, but we're always sort of keeping in mind this sort of NPR-ness. Um, uh, this is another piece that we just published. It's um, This is a great example of how, you know, you can have a series 
on the radio, which is awesome and engaging. And it might have a different expression online. Um, we're starting a series on colors soon, which is awesome. And we went up with um, to the girls up in books, and we started looking at the series list. And I was like, okay, so these stories are great, um, but what else do you think is interesting? And they're like, well, we've got these awesome facts about colors that we don't have anything to do with and some of them are pretty crazy and we're like uh, yeah that's awesome so Wes and Claire um two sort of like super brains on our team um got this really old video from the internet archive from the Perlinger archive it's from the 1950s they wanted to give an aesthetic to these facts kind of like old projections when you were like taught Roy G. Biv for the first time this is all free and it's totally out there for you to do anything with make anything with um, and so here's what it sounds like uh, and then it's basically a click through of awesome, interesting color facts that you can share and navigate through. The only thing that's read about Lucy is her hair, and even that's not legitimate. Um, there is a word that rhymes with orange. It's blorange. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> Anyways, again, it works on the mobile. It's something totally different. It's a different way of seeing something similar, uh, you know, common. It's a different way of storytelling. It gets us excited. Um, uh, yeah, pea paint. That's how I'm going to end this. <laughs> Until the late 1800s, Indian yellow, a popular painter's pigment, was made from cow urine specifically from the urine crystals of cows fed entirely mango leaves, a diet that rendered cattle haggard and farmers poor. Stuart writes in Roji Biv, fortunately for the artists and cows alike, a method was eventually developed to make the pigment synthetically. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? So video is king on the web. No, not always. Absolutely not. And a lot of the stories that we're doing, actually the majority of our stories don't have video. Um, if you look on our sort of web pages, we recently did a story on Fiesta Ware. Um, this is more of a traditional story build out with a slideshow and animated GIFs of the Fiesta Ware Factory. I actually could watch this GIF for days. Um, so no, the majority of the stuff that we do isn't video, partially because video is tremendously hard to do well. It's actually hard to do bad. It's even harder to do well. It takes a lot of time and resources. And um, when we do do video, we want it to be distinct, and we don't want to be redundant to what's out there. You know, we're not trying to be CNN or... Yeah. The question was, oh, sorry. <laughs> how do you get people to listen to audio? You know, it takes a commitment. It, it, you still, the way you're getting to people is the visual. So that's something we're struggling with, too. Well, I mean, it depends. If it's a really intriguing visual and a paragraph saying, listen to this, then people are going to listen if that's what you want highlight what the best asset is that you want people to engage with 
Um, Steve just did an interview um, in um, sort of coming up for Veterans Day, and he's like, "What can you do with this?" I, you know, I think it's a it's a wonderful um, audio interview of the parents talking about when they lost their son. It's like. You want people to listen to this. You don't want people to do anything but that. Let's get an awesome image of the family, a family portrait, and I want you to write a paragraph compelling the reader to click the play button. That's it. Um, You talked about kind of like planning for all these visuals from the beginning of the story. How long, I mean, I guess what, what are, like, what in your experience is like the best It depends. Stories are like people. They all need different things. They all look different. They all like want to say something different. They're exhausting. Um, (laughs) You know, it it really depends. Um, Sometimes we'll spend months brainstorming, and then it won't come together. Other times, um, it'll happen really, really quickly. What I suggest is um, there's something that we're trying to sort of include in our process, um, which kind of came from like software development. Brian Boyer is the head of the visuals team whose background is in software development. So we ask three things before we start big projects. The first thing is who's our audience? The second is what are their needs? And the third is what are we going to make? So it gives us a framework and some parameters before, because really the internet is blue sky. You can do just about anything. So thinking about the story and what is it that you want to communicate before you even go out and report. And then once you have the assets, coming back, looking at the assets, and then going through that exercise again, you might come out with something totally different. So... Being audience serving, I think, has been really helpful for our team, as well as doing user testing. Um, Getting out of our silos when we're working on bigger projects. For Planet Money Makes a T-Shirt, we put the project about seven to ten days before we published it in front of people and videotaped them experiencing it. And we learned so much. And we made really difficult editorial decisions and user decisions based on the feedback that we got. And I don't think the project would have been so cohesive if we hadn't done that. Um, does that kind of answer your question? No, it does, yeah. I just feel like oftentimes, I don't know, if, like we, I work on a weekly show, and it's like there's so much hassle and everything leading up to it we often kind of like stuff like this falls by the wayside um and i'm trying to figure out like i'd love to do more of the stuff and i want to figure out the best way to present it to my editor to make him love it part of it is it has to be a priority yeah you know i mean there's really no such thing as not enough time there's just a such thing as making it a low priority and sometimes it's not um sometimes it's one story at a time So not trying to prioritize everything to have an incredible visual element or map or chart, but just one thing, and then you get some more numbers, and then you go back and be like, yo, that story did awesome because we had this. And then, you know, building off of that. Um, When reporters start making images, they want a slideshow right off the bat. They're like, I'm going to make a slideshow. I'm like, I want one awesome image from you. That's all I need, one awesome image. And then think about building off of that. There was someone in the back that had their hand up for a while. Yeah. I was curious about um, when you start building interactive projects, yeah. um, how you know whether you're going too far with something that's going to be like too much to a little bit, and 
about the main strike direct balance of presenting an image in a way that is interactive and supports storytelling. What do you mean too far? Like you're throwing too much at it? Uh, I mean, it's just like, like it, it seems like the, the Borderlands intro of having uh, a few statistics there. Yeah. It seems like a really great way to make something live and interactive for people. But um, uh, I imagine that there's like a hundred ideas that you guys. Oh, yeah. Have. And do you know how we solve that? Yeah. Um, Brian has this great method. He's like, you know, we can. We can solve problems in a circle and just have one person that's really loud make that decision, or we can share that audience with people that have never seen it before, get some data, and then make an educated choice. And so whenever, if we have time and we're in a deadlock, um, it's not the loudest person in the room that gets their way, it's the audience that gets their way. And if we have time to show it and share it with a few people outside of our silo and our little circle, we're, the better we are for it. Guaranteed what's going to change is your intro. The intro is the hardest thing. And do you know what we did with this project? We had this at the end. We wanted you to experience the entire project at the end say, hey, you've been here for five minutes. And in that time, look at this. Everyone got there and was like, whoa, this is awesome. Put that at the beginning. Otherwise, I might not have gotten to it. We would have not even thought of doing that if we hadn't have put it in front of some people. Yeah. It's kind of a nosy industry question. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the leadership change in NPR, how does it affect you guys, that these cool digital projects you're working on? Are we going to keep seeing that? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, no one's told us no. So until that happens, we're going to keep making, hopefully, you know, audience-serving decisions, and we're not being sort of pushed in either one direction right now. It's really story by story, and they're letting us lead the charge. So fingers crossed. That, that said, do you, since you were sort of on the beginning edge of this, um, I guess, visual visually weighted um, sector of NPR, did you have to fight for, you know, your guys' space? Um, and, you know, it, when you have to, when someone above you asks questions, who's on that team to sort of... I think, so this is how we've kind of grown. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, radio didn't need pictures. And so uh, that was really the the sort of point where it became like it was it was sort of tough. I think the first five years of multimedia was a little bit of a challenge in sort of laying the path for people to understand that the more we collaborate and, you know, one of my first assignments was the Grand Trunk Road in India, um, and it, I was working with a radio wonderful radio reporter Phil Reeves and my, my editor at the time said so Phil doesn't like the internet <laughs> and doesn't understand why he has a photographer with him so your goal, your first assignment is not to make a photo but is to make him understand the importance of this language and why he's going to get a greater audience because his stories are going to be able to live in a place that wouldn't really you know live or could have I mean I don't know um but uh, that was sort of the first sort of big collaborative interactive um, that they tried. Um, I really think it's, it's having people that value it. If people at the top don't value this type of storytelling, then it's really difficult to do it. Um, we're lucky that we're in a place that does value it. 
Um, and we're going to keep trying to push ourselves into different directions because the last thing we want is to be boring. And we can do things that aren't successful and try them. I'd rather have something fail than just sort of be boring and not, you know, be trying to push stuff. Does that answer yeah. Yeah. You didn't talk about audio slideshows. What do you think about them? And also, just a couple of specific questions about them. How, what's sort of the longest you think an audio slideshow should last overall time-wise? And also, how long should you be on any one So audio slideshow, you mean images and audio? Right, like an audio story as you're seeing images. Yeah. Um, we used to do quite a, quite a lot of them. Quite a lot of them. And um, I think we got a little audio slideshow fatigue. Um, and and what we felt was that that sort of box sort of you know like if there's there's static images why are, if we're moving the static image why don't we just do video and if you know um, we just kind of wanted to break a little bit outside that um, there was a time when so I think everyone was doing audio slideshows and everything was getting saturated with them and so we're we're sort of kind of evolved a little bit beyond that. Um, but it's not to say that they're not valuable. They're, it, it, when people ask about time frame, I mean, however long it takes to make a compelling story. You know, we were terrified of putting five videos up for the Planet Money t-shirt project that varied in 45-second length to six minutes. We didn't think anybody would watch. But the average time on site was 36 minutes. So the... I think the takeaway there is if you have something unique that no one else has and you do it in a compelling way, people will watch. doesn't matter how long it is, right? If they can't find it anywhere else and it's a good story, they will share it and they will watch it. So it's up to you to give them that and not be redundant, not simply do what everyone else is doing and understanding your audience. Are there projects you put a lot of time in and then found that the traffic just didn't? Uh huh. Can you talk about some of those and like takeaways? Yeah. Um. I don't know. I mean, we're, that's what we're trying to do now. Is we're trying to really get some good. I mean, part of it is that their stories, right? They all have different content, so you're not sh totally sure. I do know one thing though. If we put a lot of effort into something and we make it look beautiful, but it doesn't say anything it's not going to do well. And that makes sense, right? Like, if, if the reporting doesn't make a statement or say something, and you put all this beautiful, shiny stuff on it, then no one's going to feel like they've learned anything, and then they're not going to share it, or it's just going to kind of, like, slowly go away. The stuff that rises to the top over and over and over again are compelling stories that no one can find anywhere else that were done not solely in a unique way, but were done to highlight the essence or the assets of that story. Yeah? Do you find people, um, you know, multimedia might be in, pulled into a story and, and read the webified version and not listen to the audio? And how do the, <laughs> which oh. I've done before, <laughs> but is that seen as is there tension around that, or is it just like, hey, we're pulling more people in? No, I mean, what we're trying to do more and more is not webify anything. 
we're trying to make content that's unique for the web. A, a transcript or just a simple like re-rendering of the audio story actually doesn't do as well as a completely unique story written for the web audience. So not being redundant with the content. And yeah, I mean, you have to understand where your people are. If they're on the phone on a bus, they might not have the time or the bandwidth to listen. They might be reading. Then you've got to make that story engaging to them in that place. Be where they are. Right? Do the reporters do that whole um, correspondence? Shereen? What was the question? Uh, do the reporters like, do you, I mean, write you unique write, web text? I have to rewrite my stories in order for them to go on. I work for Code Switch, mm -hmm. so it is really one of our things is this cannot, you cannot make a transcript into a story by adding a few transitions. You have to give me more content, add quotes that work for print versus quotes that work for audio. Mm -hmm. um, so you are sort of reworking the story quite a bit for the web. Which makes sense. But it's worth it. They're told there's different ways of storytelling, right? And and you have to be honest to that platform of storytelling. Um, if you're simply putting a radio transcript online, it's not as easy to read as an article that's specifically written for someone to read. Do your so do your freelancers do that too, or do you, someone else in house do it with freelancers? Uh, we have web producers that work with the freelancers to do that. Okay. So we do have web producers in the building. Yeah. So are you still um, a photographer or by working for this medium? <laughs> job I'll always be a photographer. Um, I'm kind of... I do a lot. I mean, when I have to shoot, I'm sort of the last one on the bench because we do have great other great photographers that go out. But if they're um, the border, I went on the border with the crew um, because David was in Afghanistan, I think. Um, but right now, I'm really, you know, doing a lot of different things: editing, training, talking. I mostly talk a lot, um, and and shooting when I can. The <laughs> I'm making a lot of headshots because that's really what people come to me for nowadays. <laughs> but I think it's really important as an editor to still be close to the content and to still be close to the creation of the content. At least for me, I need to keep that skill alive in order to be a better editor and to be a better producer and to be a, you know a better sort of team leader. I have I've fight really hard to make sure that I'm close to that creation line, just for my sake. I think it's important. Um, something that interested me about the image of the bus map is, um, I think maybe this is different in different stations, but it seems like a lot of conversation happens around whether a story is or isn't shareable or will or won't play online versus... Um, and, and that those conversations can happen bef either before the reporting's done, before the interview has happened. So it's kind of imagining it with broad strokes instead of like, it's happened and I have these details and maybe the general idea would or wouldn't play, but there's this detail that can go out to the world very easily. How do you shift the conversation to those details and how do you carve out the space for those conversations? Because often after the reporting's done, after the interview's done, the pressures of the environment you just have to move on to the next thing instead mm. of stopping to say, what what's the detail that we can shepherd this out to the world? Yeah, I mean, we build in uh, 
in our project planning a launch strategy. And that can be really, really lengthy or super, super small. And it, it would be, this is the promo image. This could be potential Facebook language. This is potential tweet language. Um, this is, these are the images that we want shared on Twitter. Uh, between reporting and launch. That happens be- after the story is crafted and before it's published. So it's part of our process um, because... Yeah, I mean, that's like your delivery boy, right? That's your paper delivery boy. That's the person that puts it in front of people. And so it's a huge, huge aspect of it. When we have video, um, we'll put it directly on Facebook, you know, to let them see the video right away. Um, When, um, you know, we've been using sometimes animated GIFs to uh, promote stories that don't have gifts on the page but just might make a compelling, intriguing thing. Um, so, yeah, we build that in to our process. Have you experimented with putting audio directly on Facebook? Um, I, we have not, but we're looking for a way to do that. We're looking for a way to highlight our audio content better. We have quotables, which is simply to get quotes shareable. And now we're really working on how do we get small nuggets of really amazing audio shareable. We got the best numbers from that. I'm just curious. If you... Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, if that's your best asset that you want people to listen to, then that's what you want to highlight. Yeah? Anything else? I'm here. Buy me a cocktail. I'll tell you how I almost died. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys have been awesome.